Hello and welcome back to Catching Up on Capitol Hill, a series in which we discuss the latest in tax legislation and in tax policy. I'm your host, John Gimigliano. Well, quite a bit has happened since we last spoke. As you may know, August is usually a quiet time on Capitol Hill, but not this August. The Senate stayed late this year in an effort to declare victory on a few priorities before finally rushing to airports in the usual August recess. And victories they had, modest ones, but victories nonetheless. I'm mainly talking about the Senate approval of the elusive infrastructure bill passed by the Senate by an unusually bipartisan margin of 69 to 30. The success of that bill was far from a certain thing from the start. Second, Senate Democrats approved the budget resolution for fiscal year 2022, a very important step in advancing Democratic priorities later this fall. Now, look, I say these August victories are modest, not in any way to denigrate these legislative accomplishments, but to simply note that in both cases, the House must still have its say. And shepherding and sequencing both of these through the House will be a complex and fraught exercise, the details of which are almost certainly worthy of a separate episode here at some point. But today's episode is focused on another achievement, and one we've alluded to here several times over the course of 2021, and that is budget reconciliation. That is, of course, the process Democrats will have to use to pass a second Democratic-only infrastructure bill. This, too, is where the Biden tax plan will eventually be in play. So the fiscal year 2022 budget resolution included reconciliation instructions. And those reconciliation instructions tell us quite a bit about the shape of this second bill and potentially about the shape of the tax package that will be designed to pay for that bill. So today's question is this. What do those Senate-approved reconciliation instructions tell us about the shape, the size, and maybe even the content of the tax bill to come later this year? To answer that, we've got our old friends, Jenna Cunha and Carol Kulish, to join us today and discuss that topic. So let's just jump right into it. Um, Jen, let me start with you. You're a Senate person. Can you just describe to us what exactly are reconciliation instructions? You know, the reconciliation instruction is different from the actual reconciliation bill. The way I like to think about the reconciliation instruction is that it's more of a recipe for the actual bill, right? It has some of the contours outlined. It has the amounts that are assigned to the different committees of jurisdiction. And the most important piece is it has the total amount of the actual budget, the net deficit that can be added to the budget. And the reason that matters is because, you know, from that we can glean how much tax will have to be raised in order to hit that budgetary amount. Uh, but that's the way I like to think about it. It's more of the recipe where you see like the components, but you know, you, you haven't gotten into the detail. It's just the really high level outline. So follow up then, since you live day to day through the development of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, its own separate reconciliation bill. How important, when you think, look back now at the final construct of the TCJA it was, as it was finally passed, how important were the reconciliation instructions to actually shaping that bill? Extremely important, right? Because the net amount was, you know, $1.5 trillion. So that's the most important piece, right? That's how much you can increase the deficit by. But the actual nuts and bolts, the provisions that were in there, uh, very unimportant, right? Uh, there, there's no detail. It's just a strict dollar amount, and the committees are left to their own devices on how to get there. 
Got it. So it was relevant in terms of shaping the size and the maybe the offsets, et cetera, in the bill. But of course, the content itself is a separate discussion and, and driven more by policy and politics than it is by the reconciliation instructions. Got it. Mm. All right, Carol. So then let's talk about this particular set of reconciliation instructions that the Senate approved last week. What exactly did that tell us? You just want to break down what was in there? Yeah, and let me just start by saying this particular budget resolution is a very flexible document. And that makes sense given that the Democrats are still trying to figure out what they need to do in terms of the size and the scope and the substance to get all the votes they need. And we've talked, you know, at length before about how this is a Democratic only exercise. And given that Republicans are not likely to support it, they need ultimately to get every Senate Democrat on board and almost every House Democrat on board on the bill they put together. So that the recipe, the roadmap for it, if you will, is quite flexible. In terms of the overall size, the resolution has been described as allowing three and a half trillion of new spending. But I tend to view that more as a ceiling. It's possible that the overall size of spending could end up being smaller than that, depending upon the politics and, again, you know, getting the, the required number of votes. And if we look at the language of the resolution itself and the instructions it gives to the various committees, what it does is it allows for an increase in the deficit of up to $1.75 trillion. So in other words, it generally would allow spending and other costs to exceed the amount of revenue that's raised in the underlying legislation by $1.75 trillion. But I want to note that there's a budget committee summary of the resolution that says that the cost of the bill that's put together are to be offset by new tax revenues, health care savings, and long-term economic growth. So from that document, it seems as if Democrats may be envisioning the possibility of putting together something that they can say is fully paid for. And they can say doesn't increase the deficit at all, even if some of the offsets like economic growth might not show up in the official revenue table. But again, the resolution itself gives instructions that allow for an increase in the deficit of up to $1.75 trillion. And that's instructions to a bunch of committees. TCJA was largely the tax writing committees. There's a lot of pieces to this. This is a big bill that involves a lot of different committees in both the House and the Senate. Looking at the specific instructions to the particular committees, and I'm just going to focus on the Senate since the Senate's the one that's focused about the, the passed its budget resolution so far. The resolution would instruct the Senate Finance Committee to report changes in laws within its jurisdiction that would reduce the deficit by not less than $1 billion over a 10-year period. So it's basically saying that the Senate Finance Committee has to come up with at least $1 billion more in revenue raisers than losers over a 10-year period. But it's important for us to keep in mind that Senate Finance Committee has jurisdiction over other areas in addition to tax. They also have jurisdiction over things like tariffs, Social Security, health programs like Medicare and Medicaid. And the resolution does not tell us to what extent the changes have to relate to tax matters as opposed to other areas within the Senate Finance Committee's jurisdiction. And it doesn't tell us what specific legislative changes would have to be made. But the bottom line is that at the end of the day, the Senate Finance Committee basically has to offset the cost of whatever it does in its jurisdiction. Technically, they have to raise at least $1 billion more over 10 years, but that's pretty small in the scheme of things. So the more the Senate Finance Committee spends on tax incentives, health care changes, and other revenue losers in its jurisdiction, the more they have to raise from tax or other changes in their jurisdiction. Conversely, the less they spend in their jurisdiction, the less they have to raise to offset those costs by at least $1 billion. Got it. So if, if this plays out the way 
at least it is suggested to play out, which is a $3.5 trillion bill of, you know, in, in terms of the amount spent, 1.75 of that, or exactly half, going to the deficit. The rest would have to be made up by other savings somehow, whether it's additional revenue from taxes, from healthcare, wherever. So I, I think one way to think about it is for every dollar they spend, they have to pay for 50 cents on the dollar if we really end up with a $3.5 trillion total size. Is that right? Yes, but if they ultimately spend less, then they don't necessarily need to raise as much money. I mean, if they right. only spent $2.75 trillion, then they would only need to raise $1 trillion. And again, that's all the different committees, you know, sort of looking at this from a holistic perspective. So and they, they can always choose to raise more. Right. It's just that they can't increase the deficit more than that amount. If they only spend $1.75 trillion, that means it could all go to the deficit. We don't have to raise any revenue, theoretically. Right. Yeah, theoretically. Not saying politics, that would happen, but theoretically. Yeah. Yep. Right. Okay. Politics are going to come into play both in terms of the size of the spend and the amount of the deficit reduction, and then in terms of what the actual individual components are, what Democrats can all agree on. Yeah, I mean, it's easy to imagine that raising taxes too much will cause some political problems, potentially for Democrats, but also raising taxes not enough could cause political problems. So somewhere in there, there's the sweet spot that I think that they're trying to find. All right. Jen, let's come back to that $3.5 trillion number. So we talked about the reconciliation instructions, but I think as Carol laid it out, that's not really part of the reconciliation instructions, right? That $3.5 trillion number is not a hard and fast number in the way that the $1.75 trillion added to the deficit is absolutely a hard number. Is that, am I thinking about that right on the $3.5 trillion? Yeah, that's right. I mean, the $3.5 trillion is a verbal agreement, right? That's what people have kind of... Uh, decided they want to spend on the bill, the approximate size of the spending, the net amount, that's the piece that's in the current legislation. That's the 1.75. And that's the net addition, the deficit added. So that's really the operative amount, the 1.75. The 3.5, that can get bigger, that can get smaller. That is not prescribed in the reconciliation instruction. So if they spend more, they have to raise more revenue from other places. If they spend less, they have to raise less, I think is what both you and Carol are saying. But the $3.5 trillion really represents kind of a political agreement between probably the moderate Democrats and the more progressive Democrats on the amount that they can agree to spend on this bill. And John, I would add, I don't know that all the moderates are in agreement on that amount. I think they set the high level. And I think, you know, Manchin and Cinema on the Senate side and some of the moderates on the House side might try to get a smaller amount of total spend possibly, but they set that as the high watermark because they still have to navigate the politics of exactly how much spending hits that sweet spot of getting everybody on board. So just because, you know, the, the moderates, let's just take Joe Manchin or Kirsten Cinema as our examples, just because they voted for the budget resolution, which seems to embody this deal, doesn't mean they're necessarily agreed to spend at the full 3.5. They're just willing to engage in the discussion and they may in the end want it to be smaller. Is that what you're saying, Carol? Yeah, that's what I, I think. There's a lot of politics they still have to navigate. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that's where I was saying at the outset that I think they gave themselves a lot of flexibility. They said, okay, we're going to allow ourselves the possibility of well, actually, as Jen said, they didn't even put the 3.5 in the actual resolution. They just put the amount of by which they could increase the deficit. But informally, they've been talking about this three and a half trillion as to whether ultimately you get all 50 Senate Democrats and you get all but three House Democrats on board. That's going to be the question. And I think that, you know, the amount of the spend, the amount of the deficit increase, as well as the individual components, what do you put in this bill to 
attract votes and what can't you include because it's somebody's number one issue if you include it? How do they structure the individual piece? All of that stuff, I think they're still navigating all those thorny politics. Got it. So lots of drama yet to play out. You know, don't take the three point five trillion to the bank yet. That's a it's a sort of a placeholder and yet to be negotiated in terms of size. Okay. Well, Carol, let me come back to you then. So we said the three point five is kind of a squishy number. The one point seven five, not so squishy, right? Right. That is in the actual budget resolution. That's the maximum amount they can increase the deficit. They can increase it less, but they can't increase the deficit any more than one point seven five trillion. So, Jen, you mentioned in the TCJA that number, the amount you could add to the deficit was, what, $1.5 trillion. What would have happened if you'd added $1.51 to the deficit, if that's the way the bill had scored? What would have happened? Then the bill would not be compliant with the reconciliation instructions and would not meet the standard, meet the requirements for reconciliation. So it would be subject to a point of order and then ultimately subject to a 60-vote threshold. Right, which in that case, as in this case, probably would have been fatal to the bill to have to meet the 60-vote threshold. So that $1.75 trillion is a very real number. It can be less, just can't be more. Okay, exactly. got it, got it. Okay, Jen, so we know, as Carol has outlined here very usefully, you can spend a certain amount, but the extent it's above the $1.75 trillion, you're going to have to offset it. So we start to look at what some of the items are that they can use, and it seems like any increase in taxes, at least by amending the Internal Revenue Code, would be good. But there's some interesting things that the administration has proposed that people are talking about as raising revenue. So let me just talk specifically about the one that's at the top of my mind, and that is increasing funding for the IRS. I think the administration's view is that for every dollar of additional funding you give the IRS, you get some multiple of that, three or four dollars back, in terms of increased tax revenue. And they show that on the revenue table in the Green Book. Is that the kind of thing that could be used to help meet the budgetary numbers here in budget reconciliation? The number that's actually going to drive the reconciliation procedures is going to be the number that comes out of the Joint Committee on Taxation. Now, the revenue estimates are based on tax law changes to current law. That change in funding would not qualify for potential increases in revenue. And the reason is that, you know, it's very speculative, right? These numbers that we hear that the IRS, you know, for every dollar spent, a certain amount of money is collected. That's very simple math, but it's not based on tax law changes. For instance, if there were a new reporting requirement, you could say, you know, that could potentially lead to new revenue. But these loose figures where you have like a dollar spent translating into a certain number of dollars raised, that is not based on a change to the U.S. tax law and therefore would not be creditable in a reconciliation bill. So you wouldn't get credit for it. I can almost imagine listeners right now rolling their eyes and saying that's too speculative to score, unlike any other revenue estimate we get, which are, of course, all speculative. <laughs> but in this case, I think it is your point is well taken, which is this is like one step further as we're talking about giving money to an agency and what ultimately the revenue effects of giving money to an agency is a step beyond, hey, let's amend the internal revenue code, change the law, and how does this law affect tax receipts? So I, I hear what you're saying. Carol, let me ask you then, A, do you agree? And then B, if we were to talk about Jen referred to reporting, there's a separate administration proposal to have this bank's report, certain financial information to the IRS. Would that be in the same bucket or would that one potentially count? I agree with the overall conclusion that Jen reached that under the current budget scoring rules, they wouldn't get credit 
for additional revenue raised by increased IRS spending. I tend to look at that as that's more something under CBO's jurisdiction and CBO under the, the particular budget rules that currently apply, that's their rule that they don't provide in their official table of budgetary effects information about any revenue pickup from increased spending on compliance. But they can provide Congress with an estimate of the sort of the non-scorable effect. They can do tables that show how much they think would be raised by the additional spending. It's just that they're precluded from including that under current budget rules in the official table. Now, when you get to something like, John, you were asking about the proposal to increase reporting, that's an amendment to the tax code that the Joint Committee on Taxation, who's going to be giving their score to CBO to put in the table. And JCT does take into effect the changes in behavior for example, that can come from the result of increased reporting requirements, changes to the code's reporting requirements. So they would likely look at that and say that, okay, we think that if people know that this is going to be reported, there's going to be some behavioral changes that will result in a revenue pickup. So I would expect that to be in the JTC score, which would go in the official table. But as I said, I don't think CBO, at least under current budget rules, would give credit for just more money for IRS appropriations that go to, to increase enforcement. Current budget rules that govern what's in the official table of budgetary effects would say that you wouldn't get the score for the increased appropriations funding. Got it. So anything that shows up on a JCT revenue table because it relates to an amendment to the Internal Revenue Code, that's good. That money's good. can count towards meeting your budgetary numbers under reconciliation. Anything on the official CBO table, also good. But in the case of the IRS funding, you're saying that they could give you kind of informal advice, but because it's not part of the official table under the way the budgetary rules work, they would not be able to count it. Yeah, they might even give you an unofficial table. They've done estimates of what they think you get from how much money do they think you actually pick up from the change in, in compliance. But it's just the current budgetary rules don't allow them to show that in the official table. Got it. Okay. All right, well, let's just ask one last question, which is the real question that everybody probably is waiting for. What then? The reconciliation instructions that we've just gone through, what does that tell us, do you think, about the shape, size, content of the tax bill later this year? Is the answer nothing? Or is the answer a lot? Or is the answer, it's hard to say, but it may be a little bit of something. Let me start with you, Jen. Can you take anything away from what we learned in the reconciliation instructions about what the tax bill might look like? We haven't learned a lot, but that net number, the 1.75, is a really good starting point because we know that at least if that 3.5 holds true, half of it will be deficit financed and the other half would have to be raised because it's a 1.75. So, I mean, from that, you can do, you know, kind of back of the envelope guesses with respect to which revenue raisers that have been talked about, that have been circulating on the Hill, that the administration has proposed would be needed, the type of scale that would be required to pay for that 1.75. I mean, it's a lot easier to raise 1.75 than it is to raise 3.5. So we know they don't have to use every razor in the book. They, it, it can be a little more tailored than that with the 1.75 deficit instruction. Right. And on some of those razors, you don't necessarily have to go all the way. So for example, the corporate rate, maybe this says 
we need to raise corporate rate, but we don't need to go all the way to 28. So how high can we, and you can dial a lot of the ones that are in there to get to the revenue you need. So if you really only need the 1.75 trillion, you know, everybody can go look at the green book revenue table and you can all come up with your own list of how you get there. But I think you can find there's multiple ways to get there, but it's substantially smaller than the totality of the Biden green book proposal. Okay. That's an interesting view. What do you think, Carol? Does that sound right to you or, or maybe not so obvious? Well, yeah, I mean, it sounds right, but I mean, to me, I, I, I'm really curious, one, what happens next week when the House comes back to address the budget resolution. There's some thorny politics to navigate there. And at the end of the day, how big of a bill the Democrats think they can do and what kind of tax title would be palatable, again, not just to get progressives on boards, not just to get moderates on board, but to get all Senate Democrats on board and all but three House Democrats on board. So I kind of start with the politics driving things before, you know, because this this to me is such a flexible document that leaves them the ability to work out these politics. But the politics to me are sort of where I'd start. And it wouldn't surprise me if they don't end up doing a smaller bill that requires them needing perhaps to raise less revenue than they would with the three and a half trillion bill. And I think all of this stuff, given how tight the margins are, there are certain kinds of tax changes that just maybe politically challenging for them to do and other things that are easier to do. So I kind of start piecing together what seems to be the low-hanging fruit. If you had to get to, say, $1 trillion in revenue, what seems to be the low-hanging fruit? And then you kind of build from there and say, okay, what if they get bigger? What might they need to do then? But it's just the politics of this are so thorny. And the other thing I would say is just to keep in mind that this is again, involves so many more committees than just the Senate Finance and Ways and Means, and that some revenue pickups, even within the tax writing committee's jurisdiction, they can raise and spend money, not just on tax, but also in things like health. It's just a very complicated process. That's a really important point. If they do need to raise 1.75, doesn't need to all come from tax. They could come from other sources as well. Well, so I guess the big picture is we learned something not everything we hope to know, but we maybe know a little bit more than we did before last week in terms of this total size and direction of the bill. Well, Carolyn, Jen, thanks for joining us today to walk us through the ins and outs of the complexities of the Senate's reconciliation instructions. In closing, I just wanted to touch one last time on the accounting for this reconciliation bill. You may recall that several lawmakers have said that they would only support this reconciliation bill if it was fully paid for. And that those same lawmakers, those in the Senate, actually voted for this budget resolution. And that may lead you to wonder then how you could reconcile that statement with the fact that these reconciliation instructions permit an addition of $1.75 trillion to the deficit. Well, that's a good question. But here's the thing. Fully paid for in this case is, well, it's a flexible term. It's more or less what lawmakers think it is. So yes, the revenue tables on the reconciliation bill are likely to show a $1.75 trillion deficit over the 10-year budget window. But let's be honest, the congressional budget window is artificial. Who said that 10 years is the proper time frame? Heck, not that long ago, Congress used a five-year budget window. And think of this, almost all of, maybe all of the $3.5 trillion in spending in the reconciliation bill is likely to be temporary spending. But what's not temporary are the tax increases. Those are forever, at least as currently proposed. So at some point, those tax increases would pay for the whole bill. 
In fact, over a long enough period, it would actually do more than that, arguably leading to deficit reduction. Now that assumes spending was otherwise controlled, and maybe that's a bad assumption. But this whole idea of long-term tax increases and short-term spending, I think that was the gist of the administration's original suggestion to account for this bill over 15 years rather than 10. Another example here is the one we talked about related to IRS funding. If you believe that enhanced funding for the IRS leads to enhanced tax revenue, then that too may convince you that this bill is paid for, even if it's not reflected on the official revenue tables. Perhaps the same is true with dynamic scoring suggesting that spending $3.5 trillion in infrastructure, human, hard, or otherwise, will lead to economic growth and consequently lead to higher tax receipts in the long run. Look, I am not here to endorse any of those ideas other than to simply say that if you think that Congress will not deficit finance this bill because it violates the fully paid for pledge of various lawmakers, well, that's just a little more of a rigid definition of paid for than is usually employed here in Washington. And with that, thanks again for tuning in to Catching Up on Capitol Hill. Please don't forget to submit your questions, your comments, and suggestions to our inbox. Take care, and I hope to see you soon.